If I were to be asked to sum up the Bible in one sentence, I would first laugh. Because, uh, yeah, I try to sum it up, oh, every week of my life, and I haven't got it done in a sentence yet. But if, uh, if I were forced to hold to one sentence, I would say something like this. The Bible tells the story of God's loving effort to save humans from destroying themselves. I think that's a fair summation. I know one sentence can't get the job done, but, but if I have to work with the limits of one sentence, I, I think that might sum it up fairly. The Bible tells the story of God's loving efforts to save humans from destroying themselves. Motivated by love and equipped with all the wisdom and power, God set out to save us, each one of us, and all of us together from self-made ruin. Well, sometimes I think he's got a lot of work to do. And then sometimes I look and see what great things he has done in your lives, how he has remade, remade you in his image. And I give him thanks and praise for that. He is still at work on this project. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis, sets out that story, the story of God giving great loving effort to save the world from, from destroying itself. The first book of Genesis sets out that story very clearly. And by the time you get to chapter 15, the story is in full swing. We find there, chapter 15, that God has a plan and he has a people and he has a place to work it all out. So in that chapter, he instructs the man that he has chosen to start the plan with, a guy named Abraham, and tells him to head to the place where they're going to headquarter their operation together and away they go. A plan to save the human race, as you might expect, would uh, take a good long while, generations in fact, and that complicated matters significantly because with every passing generation, there's a new chance for the people of God to not get it and lose their way. Well, a couple of generations into the plan, it looked like the plan had completely fallen apart. The people who were to be the main force in the plan had left the place where it was supposed to take where it was supposed to unfold, and they had become, in fact, slaves in the land of Egypt as a race, as a nation, an entire people group, slaves in ancient Egypt. And they remained there, feel this, for over 400 years, twice as long as the amount of time that has passed since our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. An unfathomable period of time for us. I told you the plan to save the world was going to take a long time. But in one of the most epic stories in all of human history, God then intervened in truly miraculous fashion to give unarmed slaves victory over their Egyptian captors. And God's people ended up marching out of their chains and toward this glorious destiny that God had planned for them from eternity past. And the very first thing that they needed to do, the very first task once they left the land of Egypt, was they were supposed to get themselves back to the place that... God had decided that the plan of redemption would unfold, and their people were so in love with this notion that they referred to that place, that chunk of real estate, as the promised land. Well, that task, getting back to the promised land, presented a number of problems. First, 400 years of slavery will change a people. You'll have different values. You'll have a different lens through which you view the world. You will look at yourself very differently. 400 years of slavery had changed the people. They didn't think of themselves as victorious or anything like it. 
Instead, they've grown very used to being under someone else's thumb, not having to think strategically. They were used, forgive me for how callous this sounds, but they were used to the security of slavery, not saying they loved it, but they were used to the guarantee that there would always be enough food and there would be shelter and you could get by. And as soon as these people were faced with the responsibilities of freedom, they crumpled like a paper cup. Their leader was a man whose name you've heard, Moses, probably the most famous national leader in all of human history. And he dragged that cantankerous, weak, stubborn bunch of complainers over to the border of the promised land. And he sent in some spies to scope it out. And he was preparing to give the biggest speech of his life, the one at which, uh, at the end of which he would just yell, charge! And the, the people would all go rushing into the promised land and, and they'd root out all of the enemy people who were occupying it. And the problem is that midway through that little episode, the 12 spies that Moses sent into the land brought back a mixed review. Most of them brought back fear-based reports. There were just two, two courageous men. So don't listen to those guys. We can do this. God wants to put the plan and his people and the place all together, and he wants to do it now, so let's go. And if this were a movie script, you know what would happen next. Some ominous music would start playing in the background, and and the crowd would all listen to the naysayers' report. But then the courageous spies would, would interrupt the pity party, and they'd shout out some version of the, we're the underdogs, but we can do it speech. And they'd get the crowd all fired up, and then they would all go get the job done. There'd be archers and swordsmen and and all of the accompanying battle sounds and and a great clash. But in in the end, the people of God would triumph. There'd be this great big celebration and everyone would live, say it with me, happily ever after. And that's how you always know that's a make-believe story, right? In this real-life story, that is not at all what happened. Let me describe the real scene to you instead. The camp on this side of the river, was very nervous. They'd never been a military people before, not in their entire history. And their captors, who had become an Iron Age people, had kept those secrets from the slaves for good reason. So that they couldn't make weapons that would be used against the the captor. But when the people of Israel left Egyptian bondage, they left as... um, something of a Stone Age or possibly a Wooden Age people. They really left there with sticks, and they hadn't even taken time to sharpen them. The camp was nervous. They're looking into the promised land, but but they're a bunch of vagrants. They're a bunch of people who've just been camping for a little bit too long. And they, they're, they're not a military people. And, and now they've heard all the bad news and they begin to dwell on the negative reports and they dismiss the hero's report because it's, it's too good to possibly be true. And they look across the river at the first town in the promised land and they just start to take some steps backwards instead of forwards. They shrink back quietly, hoping that nobody really noticed that they were even there. They're fully aware, you see, that God had a plan and that they were his chosen people. And they were even aware that the place on the other side of the river was the one that God designated as their place. 
all they had to do was do what God wanted, which was cross the river. And he'd do the rest. But my friends, I remind you this morning that knowing the will of God is not at all the same thing as doing the will of God. Have you been there? When you've known exactly what he wants you to do, but you're not ready to do it? These people knew what God wanted them to do, to cross the river, but but they chose to stay on this side of the river instead. And that never makes a very good movie because the people who are supposed to win turned out to be cowards. And instead of walking into the happily ever after, they, they, they beat this cowardly retreat and they lived like vagabonds in the desert, scrounging up a meal every day for 40 years, making one bad decision after another, after another, after another. The soundtrack of the movie from, from the point of retreat on toward the end isn't music. It's just whimpering and whining and complaining. And at one point, their cowardice and their selfishness, and their rebellion against God, and and their complaining. It all gets so bad, you feel this too, that God pulls Moses aside and says, change of plan, change of people. Same place. But let's just reset this thing. I'm sick and tired of these pathetic losers. I'm going to kill them all. Just going to send a disease that rips through the camp and kills absolutely everybody except you and your family. Ready, go. And in the strangest twist for a true story. Moses says, if you're going to kill them, kill me too. God, I'm on your side, but I'm with these people. God says, new plan, new people. Moses says, how about we stick with the old plan and we stick with the less than perfect people? And God says, okay. I I think somewhere there was supposed to be great celebration over that statement. That God somehow listened to a man who said, I've got one more in me. How about you, God? Let's try with him one more time. The patience of God and of um, his leader, Moses, is one of the more beautiful portraits of love and grace that is painted in the pages of Scripture. God shakes his head and says something to the effect of, "I, I guess we'll do it the hard way then. And he goes back to working with the least likely to succeed in any plan to save the human race. It'd be a terrible movie if it were just a movie, but it's not. It's real. It's a real historical series of events, and they are recorded in the first five books of the Bible. The decision on the part of the people of God to stay on this side, the wrong side of the river, was a very real event, but it also has become a metaphorical one. Let me say that again so that you hear me clearly. It was a very real event, but it has also become metaphorical or symbolic one that has been repeated in the lives of God's people down throughout time. If you count yourself at all to be one of God's people and you look back over your life, then you will remember that you have a river story too, and it is an inglorious one. Cue the white flag. 
Cue the music in a minor key. Cue the shame. Cue the dust and the wind and the whining that follows every time the people of God say, no, thank you to the plan of God. If you're one of God's people, then at some level, life for you has this repeated pattern. You encounter a situation that requires you to make a decision. You seek the will of God. You make a decision. And then you just live with the consequences of that, good, bad, or otherwise. I wish it were always the case, but simply is not. That as soon as we knew the will of God in any situation, the people of God could be counted on to always and only obey immediately. But every one of us knows that there are times when we personally have not done that, and we live close enough to other people that we get to see that they don't always do that either. And guess what? You're going to face a whole lot more opportunities in this life to repeat that very same error or to get it right. Do you have a plan for how you are going to handle the big decisions in your life? Some of you are standing on the bank of a river today because you face a decision, and I am speaking your language this morning. You know that God's will for you lies somewhere beyond where you are today on the other side of the river, and the question is whether or not you will decide to cross it and do what God has called you to do. Well, the truth is that there are both good and difficult things on the far side of the river. You do know they're not mutually exclusive, right? The good and the difficult, oftentimes they're bedfellows. There are both good things and very difficult things on the other side of the river of decision. God has promised that both of those things are there, and he will bring both of those things into our lives, but that even the difficult things will be directed by God to bring about a greater good for you or someone else on this planet. If you're facing a decision today and you know what God wants you to do, hear your pastor say this, it is high time you get on the other side of the river. But I also want to help you with that by talking for just a few minutes today about staying on this side of the river, both its motives and the consequences of doing so. When you face a decision as a follower of Jesus, your very first job is to determine what it is that God wants you to do. Until you know what God wants you to do, there's nothing to do. And some of the, 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 the knowledge of what it is that God wants you to do in times of decision is written in the Scriptures. There are plenty of decisions that have already been made with a command that comes to us from God's Word. For instance, you have a conflict with a coworker. You face a decision about how you're going to deal with him. Exodus 20 says, you shall not murder. So that takes one of the options off the, off the plate, right? Clears that up. There are many other things that really are made that plain in our scriptures. Some things are not, though. And in order to determine God's will in these matters, you're going to need to pray. You're also going to need to seek some godly counsel from somebody whose spiritual maturity you trust. You're going to need to think it through. Maybe you need to open the pages of a book and see what the church historically has done. Because guess what? The church, whatever else it's done, we've kept really good records of how we've lived down through time, both the mistakes and the great triumphs. Somebody said there's nothing new, under the plan, uh, nothing new on the planet, nothing new under the sun. Uh, that was uh, Solomon in all of his wisdom, and he's right. So many of the big decisions that we face, the answers 
can be found by looking in the scriptures, others by talking to some wise friends, and others by simply looking at history and stop doing the things that hurt. Can I get a witness, people? But once you know the will of God, there is going to be a test of your spirit. The test is this. Will you obey when you know what is right? The decision to follow what you now know to be God's will many times is not going to be easy for you, and that's why we liken it to crossing a river and why we played the the video clip that we did earlier. It was not an easy thing for any of those folks to get across the raging torrent, and there are going to be a lot of times in your life when making the decision is exceedingly difficult, even when it is very clear what you know God expects of you. You have to fight the current that pushes against you. You have to fight to keep your footing and sometimes search for a new footing because you lost yours. You can't stall out in the middle and hang out there forever. You have to keep going. Those are all very difficult things. And they tempt people to never attempt to cross the river in the first place, to not follow God's will for them because they know it's going to be hard. Let's talk for just a moment about some other motives maybe for staying on this side of the river. The first one is this, a fear of loss. Many times when we face a decision, we don't want to do the difficult thing that God is calling us to do because we think we're going to experience loss. What if life over there on that side of the decision isn't as good as how I enjoy life right now? This is going to cost me some sense of peace and comfort. Some people never obey because of a fear of loss. Some people don't obey because of actual loss that they've already suffered. The simple passing of time has taken away from many people things and people who are dearly loved to us. Life on this side of the river is no longer as good as it once was, and I just don't know if I can afford to lose any more. Fear of loss, actual loss, both keep us from stepping out there in obedience. It's also fear of the unknown. What if this hurts? God never promised it wouldn't. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking, what if it hurts? What if I don't like it? Yeah, God never said you were going to like everything he asked you to do. I know. It's one of the things that keeps me from saying yes. What if it's God's will and it doesn't work out? Those are real reasons to stay on this side of the river. Sometimes it's just rebellion. When, when fear and loss harden into a decision, often you will find that it accompanied by anger. And the word for allowing fear and loss to harden into decision is rebellion. And rebellion is sometimes accompanied by by fire, by anger, and it looks big and mad, but sometimes it's just a firm and quiet, I'm not going to do it. As you reflect on the times that you have stayed on this side of the river, can you see one of those motives maybe as being your own? Since God concerns himself far more with the condition of our hearts than with outward action, it is wise for us, the people of God, from time to time to again examine the condition of our own hearts. The fear and loss motivators, they, uh, they all have an answer from God. 
If it's fear of loss, if it's actual loss, if it's fear of the unknown, God has an answer for you. His answer is this, trust me, obey me and leave the results to me, but trust me. For the record, the rebellion motivator, that also has an answer from God. It's found in Psalm 95. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament picked it up and quoted it in chapter 3. I'll paraphrase it for you. He said, do not harden your hearts against me, or I will have to deal with you severely enough to change your mind. The call of God to the rebellious heart is to turn away from your rebellious attitude. And the word from Scripture for that is repent. But some people don't repent, and and some allow the fears to keep them on this side of the river, refusing to follow what they know God is clearly urging them to do. And it is a sad, sad thing to watch people walk away from the river because there's good things that God planned for them on the other side. And there are consequences to the decision to not obey God each time that you choose it. You need to know that those what those consequences are, and maybe knowing the severity of the consequences will help you make the decision to follow God's will the next time you face a decision. So how about a few of the consequences? Number one, if you choose to stay on this side of the river, you have to face the fact that you can't get what's on the other side. You can't get what's on the other side of the river by staying on this side of the river. And on that side of the river, there are, from God, some promised blessings that he has planned for you. Know as well that sometimes God wants to use you to bring great blessing to other people. When you make the decision not to obey God, not only do you fail to reap the blessings, but some other people in your life will too. But there's something else that's on the other side of the river that you are going to need. It's a very good thing. It's personal growth. And it comes from facing the challenge that is required of you to get across the river and to strive to lay your hands on the blessings of God. I I, I wish somebody had not been as effective a preacher as he was. Because somebody long ago preached to America this idea that if you just say yes to Jesus, your life gets easy, sweet, and good, and only that. I want to find that guy. I'm quite sure he's not going to be in heaven, so I'm not going to get to straighten it out with him when we get there. Um, But I want to find that guy and help him understand uh, what I read in the scriptures. And it's that God says, it's uphill the whole way, folks. There's some good stuff up the hill. But by charging up the hill, you will build lungs and you will build legs and you will be strong the next time the day of testing is visited upon you. Some blessings on the other side of the river, and there's also some strength, some growth that comes from facing the challenge. One of the consequences, you can't get what's on the other side by staying on this side. Second consequence is what I like to call sandy treadmill futility. Sandy treadmill futility. It's a reference to the story that I uh, I shared with you earlier. The people of Israel said, we're not going over there. So they went back into uh, what is essentially a sandy treadmill. 40 years of laps in the desert. If you follow the, the story and you plot it all out on a map, they, they, bid, they did this big circle. And they kept going to the places where they were getting defeated, going to the places where they disobeyed, going to the places where their enemies hated them and would, would rain down all kinds of hateful things on them. Just get on that treadmill and keep going, and keep going through all the bad stuff, and it's futile. It's never going to get you anywhere. You get on the treadmill, you run for three days, you get off. Guess where you are? Same place you started. 
Sandy treadmill futility. 40 years of it for the people of God. It's dehumanizing. Something about us says we're supposed to grow and we're supposed to change and we're supposed to achieve and we're supposed to get somewhere. We're supposed to go somewhere with God. And when I pour my whole life for years on end into sandy treadmill futility, I finally step off of it and I go, what? This is not how life was supposed to go. I feel like I've wasted it. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Because you have. Sandy treadmill futility is dehumanizing. But worse than that, it also brings from God intentionally applied discipline. Get this. God says it's uphill. It's a challenge. That's not punishment. It's just hard. It's just life. It's uphill. It's difficult. You're going to get stronger as you go. But if you refuse to, and you just go get on the sandy treadmill, God says, I am not okay with your futility. I am not okay with you wasting your life. I am going to intentionally start applying pain and difficulty that is intended to get you off of the treadmill and back to the place of decision. The scriptures very clearly paint the picture that God, because of his love, not because of his anger, because of his love, will intentionally apply discipline in the hopes of steering you back onto the path of obedience and blessing. Consequence of staying on this side of the river, you can't get what's on the other side. Secondly, there's some sandy treadmill futility that will suck your soul And third, there's this terrible knowledge that you have displeased your Heavenly Father. And because He equipped you with a conscience, that will torment you some. Knowing that you have disobeyed your Father will torment the soul of a child of God. And if you continue to refuse Him, this is just hard for me to say, but it's what the historical record shows us that if over time you prove that you are never going to say the yes of obedience, God will pick someone else for the mission and for the blessings. Yes, he'll pick someone else for the mission, meaning the challenge, the hard stuff, the difficulty. But that same person that he picks who says yes will also lay their hands on the blessings of God. When you say the no of disobedience, you'll get discipline, You will be displeasing to your father, and ultimately he'll pick someone else for the mission and the blessing. Here's the harsh reality, folks. Some of life's decisions are time-sensitive, meaning you got to decide right now. And if you don't, the opportunity passes you by. You ever lost a really good business deal that way? You ever lost a romantic interest that way? Some of life's decisions are time-sensitive, and when those opportunities have passed you by, they're gone forever. And the same is true in the economy of God in this world. There are times when he calls you to do something. If you don't do it, the opportunity is gone forever, and that affects the lives of other people. There are real-life consequences to our refusal or even our delay to do what God has made clear to us. Let that simmer in your conscience for a while. Now, uh, this is, for the most part, a really negative sermon, uh, it uh, occurs to me. Um, I'm, so I better not just say the amen and uh, send you out there like scalded dogs, hoping that you learn to do something better. So we should talk application for a moment. We've worked this whole crossing the river metaphor pretty thoroughly, but uh, let's just get practical for a moment. 
Let's talk about how to make knowledge of the Bible story and of the, the crossing the river principle work for you. All I've, all I've talked about thus far is how it'll work against you if you, don't, if you don't make the decision to obey God. And when you find yourself at a place of decision and you don't know what God wants you to do, remember, your first job is always to determine that. So get on your face and get with some spiritual friends and find out what it is that God wants you to do in your situation. That's your first job if you don't know what God wants you to do. Just so you know, these days, not having a great knowledge of the scriptures is a really flimsy excuse for not obeying God. Because here's the deal. Google shows up at your house and the public library just like it does on my phone. And if you put Bible, decision, murder my coworker, um, people are going to show up at your house. If you put that in the search window, just so you know, people are going to show up at your house. But you'll also get an answer. You will find abundant scriptural references and godly people who've written on these things. I'm not kidding. You put Bible and any word that you're struggling with in there, bam, you will get results. So listen, you don't have to ask your Sunday school teacher. You don't have to wait until you can talk to your pastor. And he's really busy, so we won't call him for six weeks. Okay? I'm just saying, you Google and God, figure it out, because you can these days. You can find what the scriptures teach you about any uh, decision that you face. Right? If, it is direct, if it is addressed directly in the scriptures, you're going to find it with a Google search. Right? That's one of the reasons that uh, God gave pastors to the church is to direct you to Google. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, seriously, though, there are some times when uh, you, you're facing something that is not directly addressed by scripture. It's indirectly addressed by principles, and you may not be aware of those. And that is one of the reasons that God gave pastors to the church, because we're people who've studied God's word more than average, and we've studied with some incredible scholars and some godly people who helped shape us and our understanding. And the truth is that for every pastor, there's nothing that we love more than to sit and listen to you and to help you find what the Bible teaches about your situation. Pray with you for courage and the Holy Spirit's strength to follow through on what God has, has illuminated as his plan for you. And we will be your biggest cheerleaders and we will help you follow through and find the strength to do what God's calling you to do. I promise. But what if you do know what God desires from you in your dilemma and you just don't want to obey? What then? What if you really prefer this side of the river? I got a simple process for you. The first is this. Consider your motives. Why is it that you don't want to do what God has made clear? Be honest about it. And then speak it aloud to someone Many times when we bring, remember the motives that we put up there, fear of loss, actual loss, fear of the unknown, rebellion? Consider your motives. Speak them aloud. Many times we find that by bringing our fears out of the darkness and into the light, they shrink or they disappear. You've seen how shadows work, right? I've got a shadow that's stretching across the, all the way across the platform and my, my, my head's on the door over there. Yeah, shadows are big. You shine light on that, all of a sudden the shadow of cliff goes away. When you bring your worries and your fears, and if you will even bring your rebellion out into the light of day and confess it to a trusted spiritual friend, you'll find that it shrinks and it might go away altogether. If the truth is that there's rebellion in your heart, then you need to confess that. Rebellion that remains unconfessed can be spiritually fatal. 
If you recognize fear or rebellion is stopping you today from doing something that God has called you to do, confess those things to God and ask him to change your heart. He loves those prayers. He always answers them with a yes. And it usually helps if you will confess those things to a friend as well. So you find yourself on this side of the river. You know what God wants you to do. You don't want to do it. Number one, consider your motives. Number two, remind yourself of the consequences of staying on this side of the river. You're going to miss all the good stuff that's on the other side. You're not going to get stronger. You're likely going to suffer a lifetime of futility and of active discipline from the hand of God. You'll have to live with the knowledge that your actions are displeasing to him. And in the end, Somebody else will be picked for the mission. Somebody else will be picked for the blessings. When we forget that there are consequences to our decisions, it's a lot easier to walk in disobedience. When we forget that God has promised to personally bless us for obedience, it's easy to talk ourselves into shrinking back. Third step is a a deep spiritual truth, I think. It's very simple, but deep. Here it is. Having considered both your motives and the consequences of staying on this side of the river, remind yourself that God can be trusted to do two things. Number one, bless those who obey. And two, discipline those who refuse. We ask ourselves, can, in, in the privacy of our own thoughts, can God really be trusted to bless me if I do, do what's right? Well, yeah. The scriptures say yes. Sometimes my heart doubts that. But we don't tend to think in terms of trust when we're considering the business of of God's correcting hand. The God who can be trusted to bless the obedient can also be trusted to discipline the wayward. You better remind yourself of that when you sense some rebellion, when you sense some bow in your back. Because not only are you, you're not going to get the blessings, there's a God who is trustworthy. And he says, well, okay, I reckon we can get the spanking spoon. That's what he sounds like, Noah, just so you know. Get the spanking spoon. So, a poor kid, by the way. Um, poor Noah. Spanking spoon too many times in his life. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. You can trust God to do what's right by you. That means blessing you if you obey, and it means disciplining you if you bow your back against him. Step four is this. When you've considered your true motives for wanting to stay on this side of the river, when you've considered the consequences of doing so, when you've reminded yourself that God can be trusted to bless obedience and to discipline rebellion, you are squarely at the point of decision, and you are going to have to make up your mind and do something. You're right there at the river's edge, and at this point, you're either going to get your feet wet or sandy. One of the two. Because you're going to cross the river now, or you're going to go for a few laps in the desert. It's time to decide, make a decision to cross or to shrink back, but don't call either of those things any other thing. Finally, having made your decision, get on it. Act immediately. It's amazing how many good decisions have never been followed through upon. It's amazing how many victories in, 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 uh, conceptually have never found reality because people gave themselves time to reconsider and read out and shrink back. The more swiftly you obey, the less time you will have to back out of your decision, and the sooner that you will find yourself in the place where God can bless you because of your obedience to him. The crossing the river principle applies to every single follower of Jesus and in every single area of life. 
How's this? Just some quick application. Single Christians, are you in a romantic relationship? If so, does that relationship honor God by being obedient to him? Or does it dishonor him by you being disobedient to him? You know. And if you do, you and God have probably already talked about either making it a relationship that God can honor or ending it. Anybody at the river's edge today? With our mouths, we either make God look good or we make him look like a chump. Someone once said that God has no reputation in this world other than yours. Do you have a problem with your mouth? Has the Holy Spirit spoken to you about his desires in this matter? Is it time for you to be done with the ways of speaking that are unchristlike? In case you're wondering, profanity is included in that list, but it's probably the very least of my concerns. More important are issues like truthfulness and kindness and peace. Those are other side of the river behaviors that God has promised that he would bless. Lies, criticism, divisive speech, they're this side of the river behaviors, and God's promised he'll go to work on those. Anybody at the river's edge today? Anybody ready to take action? How about financial responsibility? Uh, How about your addiction? How about that on-the-job conflict? How about tithing? How about getting involved in ministry? Anybody at the river's edge today? You know what God wants you to do. It's over there. My friends, life is not perfect. Life is not easy on the other side of the river. But it's better. It's a lot better. It's good. It is the expression of the goodness of God's heart. All the promises that lie on the other side of the river. He's brought you thus far. He's guided your life. He's, he's put influences in, in your way and brought you to the place of decision. Escorted you there personally. And know this. He's not leaving you alone to make the decision. And then if you get it right, he's your buddy again. And if you get it wrong, he pouts and goes the other way. That's not the way God works with his children. He says, I'm with you. And I'm either with you to help wade you across the river, and um, I'll I'll let you do enough of it on your own that you get strong, and then when you start to climb the hill on the other side, I'll give you a boost and a blessing. Or he'll walk with you into the desert and say, well, all right, do it the hard way. And he'll walk with you, and, and he'll make things even more difficult in the hope that you can be convinced. But in the moment of decision, know this. God is personally present in some ways more, more palpably present than all the, the conceptual directive stuff that led up to it, and, and, and probably feeling as much or more present than he will in some of the most blessed times of your life. You can count on God in the moment of decision to be your closest friend. But he has an interest in this. He is not neutral. He's not saying, well, you make up your mind. He's saying, do it, go for it, come with me, let's go. Because I know what's on the other side, and I have a plan for you. It's all over there. The plan of God is never going back to the desert of indecision. We uh, prayed for Jesse half hour ago, 
40 minutes ago. She got to the river's edge. She said, I am not interested in the other side of the river. That's what you told us, right, Jesse? I'm not uh, criticizing her by any means. We just have this living example among us of someone who said no and got to go to the desert for a little bit where God said, all right, laps. Let's do laps. If you want to do laps, we'll do laps. And all the while he was saying, or the river's right over there. Want to go to the river, Jesse? And as soon as she said the yes, he goes, great, let's walk over there. And he helped her suck up all the strength and courage that it took to walk into that cold water. And now she finds herself excited, delighted, and ready to go and uh, reap the blessings of God. You're going to grow some girl on the other side of the river. It's steep over there from, from all the scouting reports. It was good over there. Thank you for being a living example among us and letting us know about the desert laps so that we can learn from those too, okay? Thank you. I want to invite you to stand with me, bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to put Pastor Bill right at the head of this aisle. Pastor Aaron, I want you right over here. And um, if you need to leave as we pray, because we're past the noon hour, and that's all the later we, we uh, ever promise um, or ask you to, to really stay. If you need to leave, I get it. But I also know this. Some of you are standing at the river's edge today, and if you turn and walk out that door, you're going to the desert. River's down here. If you've already made up your mind, you're crossing, then great. Go, and the grace of God be with you. I don't know, text us, email us, something us, and we will pray for you and give thanks and, and all along the way. Some of you need an escort. You need somebody helping you to get across the river, and it comes from confessing your struggle, and you've got two pastors right here who would love to listen and pray with you. Just understand, when they're done praying, their expectation is that they get to walk with you as you cross the river. So why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us for just a few seconds. Lord, we're listening. If you have anything to say, we are listening today. Everybody's got their heads bowed and their eyes closed, but, you know, privacy's gone the second that you step out. The question is, what do you want? Privacy of pride or the help of God and a brother or sister? We'll just take five seconds for you to decide if you want to come and pray. Lord Jesus, what's one bank from the other? I mean, what's the difference? What's all the difference between the promised land and the wasteland? And you dreamed of us long ago. You dreamed of your plan and, and us being included in your people and, and this land of plenty. You wanted to walk us into. Thank you for never leaving us in the desert times. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Thank you for for your endurance. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that your righteous anger meets its own match in your beautiful grace.
And thank you for escorting some here to the moment of decision. And now I pray that the light would shine on their fears and on their doubts and on their worries and on their losses and on their rebellion. And those things could shrink and go away. Lord, I promised a great big old uh, promissory note that you're the one who has to keep. I promised you wouldn't abandon them in the moment of decision. I promised that you would, you'd be close enough that they could sense your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would come and make good on all those promises. I promised that as they uh, stepped out into the water, you'd be there and, and you would help them find their footing and you would help them stand against the flow. Come and be their strength. I pray that when they got to the other side, you'd give them a blessing and a boost because climbing the hill of challenge is exceedingly difficult and tiresome. Lord, we seek to honor you in this place today and I thank you for some who have said, I will. And I pray for the rest of my brothers and sisters for whom there's a decision coming. When that time comes, would you remind them you're with them? There's good stuff on the other side. And that you intend to accompany them there, I pray in your holy, matchless name. Amen.